you know, I love the mountains. I, I do. Some people are beach people, and I respect that. I get that. A complexion like mine, I'm telling you, 15 minutes at the beach, I am cooked. Okay, it's not my favorite place to be. Some people like being out in a boat on the open water, and, and I've done that. You know, a few hours is okay. I did a cruise one time. That was lovely. But I spent five weeks on a houseboat when I was in high school. Actually, it was five days. It just felt like five weeks. I was just so cooped up. It just drove me crazy. I did not like that at all. I'm not really a desert guy or a rainforest guy or a big city guy. I mean, I like all those things fine, but I am first and foremost a mountain guy. I was 11 years old the first time I saw the Rocky Mountains, and I'm telling you, they just got in my blood. I have not been the same since. I was 39 years old the first time I saw the Alps, and I haven't gotten over those either. Back in 2000, I was invited to speak at a college-age retreat in Colorado. It's called Best Eight Days. It's located in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, southwest of Colorado Springs. And we stay at a lodge there that sits at right about 9,000 feet in altitude. The surrounding mountains are 13,500, 14,000 feet. This May will be my 18th year to spend eight days out there doing some teaching with college-age young people. Since God will not let me live in the mountains, in his mercy and grace, he gives me an excuse to go out there every year for a little while, and it's always wonderful. Now, just because I'm a mountain lover does not mean that I'm a mountain climber. I mean, I enjoy hiking in the mountains, but I've never done any of the technical climbing where you use ropes, the kind of stuff that we saw in that video clip a minute ago. When I get above 10,000 feet, I look like a three-pack-a-day smoker who has to walk from the basement to the attic. I'm telling you, I'm just sucking wind. But I have done three mountain climbs, I mean, just day-long climbs that were, were pretty legitimate Climbs. I did them with each of my kids. When Aaron was 12 years old, he and I climbed Horn Mountain. Horn is a, it's a pretty steep 13.5 mountain. Round trip was a 10-mile climb, five miles felt like straight up, five miles straight back down. There's a first peak there, you'll see in this picture, and then there's a little bit of a dip, and then it goes on up to the second peak. Aaron and I got to the first peak. He said, really, he was, he was good, and I was a lot more comfortable with him staying there. But I told myself, I don't ever want to feel this bad again, so I want to get to the top and call it good. And so I left and went on up about 45 more minutes, got to the top with some people, and then came back down, met up with him again. Now, I really hadn't thought about it, but a few years later, Daniel comes along, and he wants to climb the mountain too. So he and I made it to that first peak again, and uh, he got as far as his brother did. He was good. I was good. We kind of called it good there at the first peak that time. A couple of years later, along comes Mackenzie. It's her turn. She wants to do the hike again, so we decide to do that. We got to the first peak, and she was not about to only be where her brothers got to. She wanted to go all the way to the top. I said, that's fine. We were in a group. You guys go to the top. A few of us are going to wait here at the first peak. And she said, no, you're not. And so uh, she had that ability with me wrapped around her little finger a little bit. And so she drug me to the top. And we actually all went up and uh, just reached the summit together. Man, it was really, really a beautiful day. It was a pleasant day. We sat up there 30, 45 minutes or so. We sang worship songs. It was just absolutely amazing to be there. 
Now, the next year, Gail decided she was going to do the climb. She asked me if I wanted to go. I said, honey, I'm three and done. Uh, I did it with the kids. I bless you. You go. You have a good time. You go with the group. They went up, and it ended up there was a kind of a major snowstorm that hit while they were there. They came back down in two and three foot uh, snow drifts. They were several hours late getting back, scared us all to death. Um, one girl literally almost went over the side. Mountain climbing can be hard sometimes. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it's like to do the, the climbs of mountains twice that high out in the Himalayas where you do it for weeks at a time. It's a hard thing. But I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this. Mountains are mentioned a lot in the Bible. In Psalm 36, 6, it says, Oh Lord, your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Psalm 95, 3, the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods, the mountain peaks belong to him. Psalm 97, 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord of all the earth. And then Psalm 125 says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. Now we go from Psalms to the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says in chapter 36, But you, O mountains of Israel, will burst with new growth, bearing fruit for my people Israel. Notice that God says that the mountains of Israel will bring growth and bring blessing to the people of that nation. Now with all this talk about mountains, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had what you might describe as a mountaintop experience? I mean, you probably know what I'm talking about. Those, those times where you experience something that's really dramatic, it's, it's really exhilarating, maybe it's intense in some way, it's life-changing, and it happens to you, and it's just so profound. And, and I would think that probably most of us have been there. I've gone to weeks of church camp that were like that for me, conferences, maybe a time on vacation, a mission trip, some, a, a concert perhaps. These retreats in Colorado every year. They are mountaintop experiences. You know, there's been a lot of debate over all that happened at Asbury College during this past month. Was it a revival? Was it an awakening? Was it just a spiritual high that's going to dissipate in no time? I don't really know how to quantify it. All I know is that when thousands of people from literally all over the world converge on a little town in Kentucky simply because they want to get together to worship, something dramatic is happening. I believe that mountaintop experiences are crucial for us to grow stronger and grow deeper in our faith. But friends, I have discovered that you cannot live on the mountaintop. What makes those trips to the top meaningful is that they are, by definition, beyond your normal scope of life. You are seeing things from higher up, from above. You're experiencing things in some kind of extraordinary way. One of the great things about mountaintop experiences is that usually they help prepare you for the valleys of life that will inevitably come. We need the mountains because of the valleys. Well, there are a number of mountains in Israel, and the Bible mentions numerous mountaintop experiences that took place at these different peaks. So we're going to spend a couple of months looking at mountaintop experiences in the Bible. But you, O mountains of Israel, will burst with new growth. You will bear fruit for my people. 
Today's mountaintop experience takes place on Mount Moriah. I think it's one of the most overwhelming events in all of Scripture. And before we read the text, I want to ask you another question. Have you ever had somebody tell you to do something that did not make sense at the time, but it became clear later on? Maybe you're a kid and your parents make you take medicine and you're thinking, I'd rather be sick than take that medicine. But then the medicine helped you get better and it all worked out. Or maybe you're a teenager and your parents don't let you go to that party because there's not going to be any adult supervision and you're mad and you're frustrated and the party ends up getting busted and everybody gets into trouble except you. Or maybe you're at work and your boss rejects your great idea and makes you do her lame idea and you do it and it all works out perfectly and you end up getting a bonus or you get a promotion and it's all because you did her plan even though you didn't want to. You know, a movie came out several years ago called Ladder 49. It was about the, the fire department in Baltimore. And the movie begins with this guy who is trapped in a burning building. And the fireman attaches a cable to this guy and tells him that he needs to climb over the side of this building. And then he'll be lowered down to the rescuers. And the guy says, I can't do it. And the fireman says, you've got to do it. You've got to trust me. This is the only way to be saved. And it's counterintuitive when you're standing on solid ground to, to climb over the side of a burning building. But ultimately, he had to put himself in danger to be saved. Sometimes, when you do what you're supposed to do, even though it doesn't make any sense at all, later on, it works out for the best. So let me ask you again, has anybody ever asked you to do something that didn't make any sense at all at the time, but when you followed through, it became clear later on? Let me give you a bottom line, and then we'll sort of sort this out and unpack some things together. Bottom line today is that obedience now brings clarity and blessing later on. Obedience now brings clarity and blessing later on, specifically when it comes to God and his will for our lives. I believe this is the essence of what it means to trust God. It's saying yes to God when what he asks doesn't make sense, but we know that it must be best, and ultimately we're blessed for doing it. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham to load up his, his household and travel to a new land. And God promised that he would have a son and that through that child, Abraham and his wife Sarah would become the parents of a great nation, the people of God. Despite the fact that Abraham was already 75 years old, Sarah was 65, they trusted God, they obeyed, they believed these promises, and they set out on this new adventure. Now, there were some ups and downs along the way. They made some bad choices. Abraham got himself into some trouble. God ended up waiting 25 years to fulfill his promise. That's a long time when you're waiting for God to do what he said he's going to do. Finally, Isaac is born. Do you know what the name Isaac means? It means laughter. Considering the fact that Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born, it's no wonder that God named him laughter. Max Lucado said the only woman in town was Sarah who paid her pediatrician with her social security check. It was just so unexpected. Well, today's event takes place 12, 14 years after Isaac was born. This mountaintop experience stands as one of the most raw, the most profound, the most shocking, I think the most beautiful accounts in all the Bible. 
It's the picture of God asking a man to do the impossible, that man trusting God enough to obey when it didn't make sense, and then God stepping in at the last minute to totally transform this guy's entire future. Remember, obedience now brings clarity and blessing later on. Let me read the, the, the story to you, at least a good bit of it, and then we'll unpack it a little bit at a time. Genesis 22 begins this way. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, or he said to Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. Can we agree that there are some passages in the Bible that are hard to swallow? And I don't mean hard in the sense that God doesn't have the power to do that. I believe he does. But that God would ask it to be done. It's, it's just hard to understand. Noah's flood that took the life of nearly every creature on earth. Wars of annihilation in the Old Testament where the Israelites were told to completely eradicate a people group, a pagan nation. The angel of death who killed the firstborn child in every household in the land of Egypt. God did some things, does some things that I don't understand. Truthfully, this story in many ways is one of those. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering, and it's incomprehensible. It violates laws that later God would establish for his people. It violates, I think, God's character in so many ways. Now, the author of the text knows how much trouble we're going to have with this story, so he, he tries to make it a little bit easier for us to swallow by telling us right off the bat that this is a test. It's like he doesn't want us to worry too much as he begins to tell the story that, you know, God's not really going to make him go through with this. He tells us it's only a test. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham could not turn to Genesis chapter 22 and see how all this gets resolved. He's right in the middle of this horrible nightmare, and God asked him to do the most heartbreaking thing imaginable. 
not only was Isaac his precious son, he's the child of the promise. According to previous conversations Abraham had with God, Isaac was supposed to be the ancestor of all the Jewish people. His descendants were supposed to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. It doesn't take a genius to figure out if you take the life of your only child, you're not only not going to have children or grandchildren, you're not going to have future generations. I mean, the only reason Abraham could do this was because he decided a long time before God gave him this command that he was going to trust God no matter what. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham was able to follow through because he was certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that if God told him he'd be the father of many nations and if God turned around and told him to take the life of his only son then God must plan to raise Isaac from the dead after the sacrifice in other words Abraham knew that God would resolve the situation even though this command made no sense at all it was completely unreasonable Abraham had already decided that he would be completely obedient, that he would trust God completely. Let me show you some phrases in this text that just really jump out at me. God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Not just your son, your beloved son, the apple of your eye, the child of the promise, the one that you waited so long for. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac. Maybe you remember when Jesus walked that road to Calvary to be crucified, he carried the cross on his back. Here you have Isaac, and later you'll have Jesus bearing the wood that would be an instrument as they laid down their lives. Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? How do you answer a question like that? Can you imagine Abraham just choking back the, the, the words? Don't worry, son. God will provide the lamb. And then it says Abraham bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Friends, the only reason you would tie up a sacrifice is because it's trying to get away. Can you imagine what must have been going through Isaac's mind as he realized his own father is about to take his life? Surprise, confusion, terror. Oh God, I'm about to die. I believe Isaac is screaming. Abraham is sobbing. I mean, if you were not just overwhelmed by the, the obedience of Abraham, the pressure of this moment, I don't think you understand what's, what's taking place here. He is literally about to kill his son. And verse 10 is just so matter-of-fact in its description. He reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. I, I, just, I can't imagine. You talk about a command that doesn't make sense. And it's what makes, I believe, the rest of the story so powerful. In verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
And Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. God told Abraham to do the impossible. Abraham trusted God even though it didn't make any sense at all. And because of his trust, God blessed him beyond measure. You know, when I was growing up in Louisville, I had a friend at Oklahoma Christian Church. That's where I grew up. And she was a few years older than I am. Her name's Lynn. And Lynn was a faithful Christian, just really loved the Lord and when I was in college as a senior, Gail and I would go to Oklahoma each weekend. I worked with singles there. We had a ministry to single adults. And Lynn got engaged during that time. She was active in our singles ministry, but her fiancé did not come to church with her. He wasn't interested in her relationship with Christ. He had grown up in kind of a different faith tradition. He'd washed his hands of all of it. And one Sunday morning, the pastor of the church preached a sermon from 2 Corinthians 6 about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It doesn't mean you can't be friends with unbelievers. Of course we're friends with unbelievers. Our whole goal is to build bridges and help unbelievers come to Christ. It doesn't mean if you're married to an unbeliever and you're a believer that you're supposed to divorce your spouse because that doesn't solve anything at all. The pastor just explained that if you're a Christian right now, you should not enter into a close partnership with an unbeliever. And that's a warning about business, financial ventures, but especially about marriage. Don't be unequally yoked with them because they don't share your values, they don't share your faith. And Lynn just, man, just took that message to heart. She felt like God was speaking directly to her. And she agonized over what to do. I know she did because she told me. And ultimately, to the shock of her fiancé and the shock of her family, she broke the engagement. She decided that for her, marrying him would violate God's will for her life. And it broke her heart. It led to months of anguish over that decision. But sometime later, it's been years now, when I talked to her, she was happily married to a Christian man. And she felt like because she trusted God and because she obeyed God when it was so hard, she believed that later on it brought clarity and it brought blessing because of her faithfulness. Obedience now can bring clarity and blessing later on. So, you know, I wonder about your life and about mine. And there's lessons that we can learn in all this. And I wonder if maybe for you there's a lesson here about sexual purity. You know, God says to wait for sex until marriage. And it's not that you're not physically equipped to have sex. Not that sex doesn't bring immediate pleasure. But in the long run, he suggests that sex is better to wait for marriage. And you're going to have a, a, a different kind of relationship not just physically, but emotionally, by waiting. Now, if it's too late for that, I mean, of course, God and his grace can help you deal with that. All I'm saying is, when you wait, someday you're going to look your spouse in the eye, maybe on your wedding night, and with complete integrity, you're going to be able to say, I've waited my whole life for you. There won't be the unhealthy comparisons with previous lovers, or you're able to experience that first time the exhilaration of that together. And our culture says, that's crazy. Why would you do that? That's ridiculous. 
People can't wait. We don't do that anymore. That's so un, you know, that's just so old school. But I believe that God can give us clarity and blessing later when we honor his commands. Now, maybe, maybe for you, this has to do with money. You know, God teaches us in his word that we ought to spend wisely and avoid unnecessary debt. We ought to give generously. We ought to, you know, save strategically. And discipline like that gets in the way of all the stuff that we want. How am I supposed to save money when all my friends keep buying things I can't afford? You know, we just want to spend, spend and get everything now. And, and God says, you know what, if, if you'll do it my way when it relates to money, it's going to make more sense later on. You're going to be at a better place financially later on. I'm going to help you avoid a lot of the traps that people fall into. Maybe obedience just has to do with your career path in general. Maybe the fact is you're working yourself to death. And friends and family are telling you to slow down. And you've alienated your husband or wife or, um, you know, your kids hardly know you anymore. And you keep telling yourself you're doing it for them. But deep down, you know you're doing it for you because you like the money or you like the advancement or the, the respect, the authority, more control, whatever it is. Living a balanced life, you say, well, that just doesn't have the same payoff as the lifestyle I've chosen, but in the long run, you'll be healthier. Your relationships will be deeper and richer. It makes sense later when you say yes now. And, and, and here's just one more. Maybe obedience for you has to do with surrender to Christ. You've been saying all along that one of these days you need to become a Christian. One of these days you need to get right with the Lord. But you've just never taken the time to sit down and talk with somebody about those things. You've never bowed your knee to God and said, God, help me. You've just never surrendered before him. Maybe you've read right in the scriptures about how people who come to Christ get baptized as a symbol of the old person dying and being buried and being raised up to a new life. And you say, you know, I just have never taken that step. I'm not sure why. It's just that it's never kind of worked out for me. You know, as of our last service, I have now baptized 509 people. And I have never had one of them come to me and say, you know, I don't really know why I bothered doing that. That didn't mean anything to me. I don't, I don't know what that was all about. I, I shouldn't have done that. No, no, never has anybody said that to me. Instead, it's been things like, I don't know why I waited so long. That's exactly what I needed. I'm so thankful that I, I made that decision, that I took the plunge. Because obedience now can bring clarity and blessing later on. And I believe that this account of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah teaches us that. Now, before we wrap up, let me take you back to them just for a second. God provided this ram in the thicket for the burnt offering. Isaac is saved. Abraham has never been more relieved in his whole life than he is right now. And then it says in Genesis twenty-two fifteen, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God said, look, Abraham, because you obeyed, even when it didn't make sense, I'm going to give you millions of descendants. I'm going to give your, your nation, your people, a great land. And the entire world is going to be blessed through you. 
And we know that exactly 42 generations later, the entire world was blessed through Abraham and through Isaac because one night in a little town called Bethlehem, a woman gave birth to a baby and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And the world was never the same after that. Because Abraham said yes to God. Now, had Abraham disobeyed, God would have found another way to bring Jesus into the world. But because of his obedience, he got to be part of the front row seats to watch what God was up to. Everything became clear later, and he was blessed beyond his wildest dreams. I believe that when we obey, even when it doesn't make sense, we obey now, it brings clarity and it brings blessing later on. You know, Mike Bro was for several years the preacher at Southland Christian Church in Lexington. And, and he told several years ago about a trip that he had taken to Alaska some years before that. And he said there was a guy who took him to the Kenai Peninsula and they drove along the Cook Inlet. And he said he looked off in the distance, there was this incredible black beach. But he said there were huge warning signs that said, danger, keep out. And Mike said, what's the deal? That was like an amazing beach. And his friend said, that looks like black sand, but it's actually glacial silt. He said, you don't want to get into that stuff. It's like quicksand. You sink in that. It wraps around you. You can't get out. And this guy went on to say that in July of 1988, a honeymoon couple rented four-wheelers, and they were just driving all over the place, having such a great time. And Adina Dickinson ignored the warning signs. She drove out onto the silt, and she jumped off her ATV, and she immediately sank up to her knees. And at first, her husband thought it was funny, but then people started honking their horns, and they stopped, and they said, you cannot go out there to help her. They called 911. These fire trucks came, you know, lights flashing and sirens blaring, and they tried to use pressure hoses to get her loose, but by now she's up to her thighs. And, and she was just stuck. They brought a helicopter in to try to lift her out, and they could not do it. When the tide came back in, Adina drowned because she foolishly refused to, to obey those signs and follow directions just because she didn't understand why it mattered. You know, disobedience sometimes doesn't just bring regret. Sometimes it brings tragedy. But when we obey, even if we don't understand, even if we don't think it's a great idea, when we are obedient now, later on there'll be clarity. And later on there will be blessing. And so we obey and we trust even when it doesn't make sense. Let's pray. Oh, God, there are things that you ask of us that we don't understand. There are things in your word that you've said that, that just seem either so outdated or just seem too hard. And, God, there are doors that you open before us, and there are kind of nudges that we receive from the Holy Spirit, and we think, I don't want to do that. But when we follow you, when we obey you, when we trust you, even when it's hard, God, I believe later we see with hindsight a clarity that we might never have had before. And the blessings that come from walking with you will take us into eternity. 
And so, God, would you give us the courage to say yes when everything in our lives and in our will wants to say no? Would you help us to obey even when it's hard? That's our prayer, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.